This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 111, The Royal Gods. This is part 4 in the life and times of Amunhotep IV, King of Egypt, commonly known as Akhenaten. Today, we explore the culmination of Amunhotep's early policies in Thebes. Big events were underway, including the celebration of a said festival for the king and the god, which helped to reshape the position of Aten within the cosmos. This was an unusual process, unprecedented in the annals of royal history. Today's story is brought to you by Christopher Brosh and Rob Wotherspoon, who kindly donated to the podcast. Also, thank you to Nancy Bustick and Michael Nooner, who became patrons. Folks, your generosity is greatly appreciated. With your help, offerings flow to the temples of Aten, and the said festival is celebrated with unprecedented abundance. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. May the rays of Aten warm your face, and his hand bring life to you and your family. Now then, on with the story. The year was 1360 BCE, regnal year 3 under the majesty of Amunhotep IV, Nefer Keperure Wa Enre. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt was well established in power and had begun to reveal some of his unique ideas about the gods, specifically the prominence and awe of his favourite deity, Aten the Sun Disk. Previously, Amunhotep had expressed his ideas modestly but with increasing confidence as he and his authority grew. In year two, he had declared his love for the god, one beside whom there was no equal, and he had commissioned temples to Aten in the sacred precinct of Karnak. In the Gemet Pa Aten and the Hut Benben, Pharaoh glorified the sun disk in sculpture and two-dimensional art. Also, the Aten himself had received a makeover. The sun god was no longer a conventional deity, with a human body and a falcon head. Instead, Aten was now an abstract disc, with arms, rays, emanating from his body. In this pure form, Aten and the pharaoh who loved him were reaching the culmination of their early development. That is how things stood at the beginning of year three. Labourers built temples, craftsmen produced decorations, and farmers were putting their hoes to the soil in order to produce food for the god. You see, having established the theology of Aten and founded his temples, Amunhotep IV now started to make his god rich. Many people throughout history have founded or initiated new religious movements, but by and large, most of them were private individuals with modest means. And while they might have become rich, conveniently, 
they generally started with big ideas, but limited resources. Amunhotep IV is one of the few examples of a religious leader who had both the idea and the wealth to make his vision a reality. From the start, Pharaoh had access to the revenue of an entire kingdom, an empire even. He had massive financial support for any plan he conceived. As far as founders go, Amunhotep IV was in a uniquely privileged position. He showed this early on, when he began to establish and fund the cult of Aten in a big way. Not long after he founded the first Aten temples, Pharaoh issued decrees for the provisioning and supply of those centres. It is easy to start a temple, of course, much harder to keep it running. And Amunhotep needed to consider how his god's shrines were going to operate once completed. Sanctuaries need priests, priests need supplies, and supplies need labour. To produce all of those things, the Aten temples were going to need a large dependent workforce. Excitingly, we have some of the texts through which Pharaoh established that economy. The king went big, right out of the gate. To begin, Amunhotep IV assigned over 13,000 people to the provisioning, upkeep and service of the Aten temples at Karnak. These included more than 6,800 support personnel, 3,600 cattle herders, and over 2,500 men of Lower Egypt, whatever that means. All of these people and the production they created were directed to the treasuries of Per Aten, the umbrella term for the Aten shrines now rising at Karnak. 13,000 people is a lot, of course. Even by modern standards, it's a large corporation. However, most of those people probably never visited the Aten temples, or even saw them. What Pharaoh was doing here was assigning farmland, and the labourers of that land, to provide revenue for Aten. If the new temples were corporate headquarters, most of these people worked in regional centres, producing goods for a leader they would never see. So we should imagine a huge number of farming estates scattered up and down the Nile, where farmers and labourers produced goods. Those goods would be shipped upriver to Thebes, where they would be taken to the temples for use by the priests and king. It was a country-wide program, bringing revenue to the royal centre and the god who ruled there. The number of employees was huge, and the variety of estates and producers was also vast. We know this because, on the decorated blocks that survive, dozens of men show up with titles relating to economic production. Among the many leaders, we see functions like Scribe of the Office of the Granary, Vineyard Keeper, Office of the Overseer of Peasants, Scribe who Counts Livestock, and so forth. Dozens of individuals, each one representing a whole industry of producers and anonymous labourers in the background. Beyond the basic offerings which could come from anywhere, Amunhotep IV also made a decree aimed at the gods of Egypt. Having established Aten as the supreme deity, beside whom there was no equal, Pharaoh now decreed that the temples of other gods would send contributions to the cult. We know this because a fragmentary text records the surprising moment when Amunhotep laid a tax on the temples of the land. Every town, every region, had its own patron deity, a protector god whose cult was important in that region particularly. 
Gods like Osiris, Hathor, Kanum, and Satet were worshipped in temples at different locations. Those temples grew wealthy from their communities and the farmlands that served them. Now, the pharaoh of Egypt appropriated some of that wealth and directed it to the cult of his god. Quote, The things which are dedicated to the house of Aten in southern Heliopolis, which the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neferkeberure Wa Enre, dedicated to his father, Horus Aten, as the tax of each year. The gods and goddesses of the north shall provide this tax. Horus of Charu, Horus, lord of Athribus, Osiris of Busiris, Re of the great mansion, perhaps Heliopolis, and Hathor, lady of the field of Re. In the south, temples of gods and goddesses, which were assessed with annual taxes, include the house of Kanum, lord of Elephantine, Nekbet, lady of Elkab, Montu, lord of Armant, Min of Koptos, and Wepwawet, lord of Asyut. End quote. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Amunhotep IV, levied attacks on temples throughout the two lands. Gods of all types, patron deities of their towns, would now give wealth directly to the Aten and its cult. It was a massive step forward in the foundation of Aten's religion, and a key component of the king's early policy. To be clear, we are not sure if this tax was new, created by the king, or whether Amunhotep took a pre-existing tax, like a government tax, and simply redirected that to the cult of the Aten. Either way, it was a significant move, but we can't be certain if the king was radically changing the economy of the temples, or adjusting a policy that was already there. Whatever it was, we can be sure that Aten was now growing wealthy indeed, Royal estates, production centres, farmland and labourers were working directly in support of the god. Temples, with their own wealth, were contributing as well. Amunhotep was directing huge quantities of material to the temples of Aten. At a stroke, Pharaoh had made his god one of the richest in the land. All of this abundance was for a purpose, and it wasn't for the king. Amunhotep IV had a plan, a plan to glorify Aten in an unprecedented manner. Part of the reason that so much wealth came to the temples was that Pharaoh intended to celebrate a festival. Not just any festival though, Amunhotep was giving Aten a said festival. Early in his reign, Amunhotep IV ordered a massive celebration at Thebes. A said festival would be held at Karnak, and, in a strange twist, it would be celebrated jointly by the king and the Aten. This was a bold move. Certainly it would raise the god's prestige and give him prominence in the world, but the idea of a said fest for a deity was unprecedented as far as we can tell. Once we get into it though, it does seem to be a logical culmination of the king's strange ideas. The Sed Festival, or Heb Sed, took place around late 1360 or early 1359. It's not exactly clear. Different scholars put it at different moments, some as early as year 2, others as late as year 4. I'm going with a middle date, but this is just convenience. Don't quote me on it. Anyway. We've seen enough Sed Festivals to know that they were a lavish affair, 
processions and rituals, convocations of the powerful, adorations of the king. Foreign emissaries came to give tribute. High officials prostrated themselves before the splendor of Pharaoh. They were grand pageants, full of rituals and performance. Or at least, that's how it went normally. The Heb said of Amunhotep IV, slash Aten, was quite different from what previous rulers had done. Traditionally, we would see Pharaoh engaging in rituals and celebrations, physical performances and feats. The events of Amunhotep III, for example, saw that king leading rituals like raising the jed pillar, sailing on the night bark of Ray, and the battle of Pei and Dep. Those events, and many others, helped to rejuvenate a pharaoh's power and renew the links between ruler, humanity, and the gods. They were good events, valuable ones, events that dated back to the Old Kingdom and earlier. Unfortunately, Amunhotep IV discarded a lot of those practices. The new pharaoh's Sedfest was quite different from what came before. All of the old rituals were missing, at least from the artistic record. Instead, Amunhotep seems to have stripped things back to a more direct communion. On the one hand, we see him in parades and processions while the Aten shines down upon him. In other places, we see the pharaoh making offerings, holding incense and goods up while the rays of the sun disk stretch down to receive them. It is all very simple, very direct. Once again, Amunhotep seems to have favoured purity, at least in his artistic images. A few texts survive for these offerings, and they show the king speaking to the god, saying things like, quote, You shine beautifully in the horizon of heaven, O living Aten, the one whose name is great, whose titles are holy, as your rays shine upon your son, whom you set upon the throne. End quote. Pretty conventional stuff. The king praises his god and thanks the deity for granting him the power of rule. We've seen this sort of language before, with pharaohs making offerings to gods like Amun-Re, Re-Harakti, Atum, Montu, and Ptah. It's standard stuff, but it is nice flavour, especially when the king talks about Aten's rays shining upon your sun. It reminds you how much of this the king took personally, and it gives excellent insights into how the pharaoh saw himself. In most of these scenes, Amunhotep tends to be alone. He occupies an entire layer or register to himself, and only servants accompany him. Carried in a portable throne, which is designed to look like the hieroglyph Heb, or festival, Amunhotep IV wears the white crown of Upper Egypt and the costume of the Sed. Above him, Aten shines down exclusively, its rays touching only the king, and they hold symbols of Ankh, or life, before his face. Always, the sun disk and the pharaoh are in a unique relationship, one that no one else shares. These kinds of motifs are rife throughout the said festival imagery, and it's clearly a culmination of Amunhotep's claim to being the Wa En Rei, or Rei's one and only. That exclusivity, that drive for uniqueness, was powerfully visible at the king's said fest. Of course, it wouldn't be a royal celebration without plenty of parades, and we see those in huge quantities on the Karnak blocks. Pharaoh shows up riding his chariot, or in a litter carried by servants. 
He leads processions, along with Nefertiti and three of their daughters, who would have been quite young at the time, but we'll meet them soon. Behind the royal family, hundreds of servants carry fans, bow to the king, and work to carry the royals on their long processions. Captions to these scenes describe them along the lines of, quote, Coming in peace by his majesty to, or from, the Gemet Pa Aten in the house of Aten in southern Heliopolis. End quote. Basically, the whole affair was characterized as a festival for Aten in a temple complex designed to parallel the grand sanctuaries of Rei. Scenes like this tend to be huge. One of them is 4 meters tall and 35 meters long. That's 13 feet by 115 feet. A real beast of a work. Amunhotep really seems to have favored a bigger is better approach. When the king and queen ride, they pass by offering tables piled with goods. The thing is, even the offering tables are huge, as tall as trees. If you just glance at them, you might think the couple were riding through a forest. In a way, they are, an artificial forest, blessed with abundance and made possible through the power of the king and the light of the Aten. All of these festival scenes are conspicuous for what they don't show. Once again, most of the conventional Sedfest motifs are entirely absent, and this has led some Egyptologists to question whether the festival itself actually took place. While we have artistic images from Karnak, we don't have the sort of material records, jar labels, dockets, etc., that would testify to the event physically happening. It's possible that the Sedfest is a propagandistic fiction, something the pharaoh depicted but never actually did. I'm not sure I buy that hypothesis, personally. For one thing, the place where the Sedfest took place was later dismantled and destroyed, so the receipts, as it were, could easily have disappeared. And it's hard to imagine why the king would show a Sedfest without actually doing it. I mean, Amunhotep had the means, and an event like this was a great way to solidify his god's prestige. So I think it did actually happen. The fact that we don't have the physical records could just be an accident of preservation. There is one other question to ask. Why would Amunhotep hold a Sedfest this early in his reign? Traditionally, Egyptian kings would use the Hebsed to mark an anniversary of their ascent to power, about 30 years or so. Once that milestone was reached, Sed festivals could repeat every three to four years but generally, the first one took decades to achieve. The answer might have something to do with Amunhotep IV's predecessor. It had been just five years since Amunhotep III had celebrated the last of his three jubilees, and it's possible that the new pharaoh wanted to present his reign as a direct continuation of his father's. As we'll see later, the connections between Amunhotep III and Aten are many, and it's possible that Amunhotep IV treated Aten as a sort of overarching ruler. In this idea, the Aten had ruled forever, and it was entirely appropriate to celebrate said festivals as frequently as he wished. If that's the case, it might explain why we get a royal jubilee this early in the reign. There is one last aspect of the said festival that's worth talking about, 
It has to do with the guests, the people not participating, but visiting in order to witness the event and pay their respects. As we close this chapter, I want to give a shout out to the foreigners who came offering tribute to the pharaoh. 18th dynasty said festivals took place in a time of empire. Egyptians were supreme in the might of their armies and the extent of their authority. In terms of landmass and population, no other local kingdom could match them. With that in mind, the said festivals we know about, mainly the ones of Amunhotep III and IV, seem to have included a large congregation of foreigners who came giving tribute to the pharaoh. Amunhotep IV, like his father, included a large foreign element in his said festival. On a number of blocks from the Aten temples, we see men coming before the pharaoh to give obedience. They raise their arms in the gesture called hesi, or praise, and around them hieroglyphs proclaim their respects. Quote, Giving adoration to the younger god by the chiefs of every foreign country. Presenting tribute to the victorious king by the chiefs of Naharin, Matani, and the chieftains of Kush, Nubia. The leaders of every remote country have come bearing every type of good thing so that they may live. End quote. Chieftains of many foreign lands, from the colonial territories of Nubia to the allied kingdom of Mitanni, came bearing tribute for the pharaoh of Egypt. We see them praising the king, and some of them are bound in shackles like prisoners. It is possible that Amunhotep IV had already commanded some kind of military action in the Near East, and I'll talk about the evidence for his wars in a future episode. These prisoners might be real, captives of a conflict raging through Syria at the time, or they might be symbolic, motifs of Egypt's power and supremacy over all lands. Either way, Amunhotep IV played the Lord of All Foreign Countries card quite strongly, and the surviving scenes from Karnak show a huge number of foreigners coming before him to offer their subservience. All things considered, there's a good chance that this was real. Some of the men would have been guests, hostages, at the Egyptian court. Others would have been diplomats, coming and going on the never-ending cycle of communication. Finally, some of them might have been ordinary foreigners living in Egypt and eager for a glimpse of the mighty pharaoh himself. Amunhotep's Sedfest, a joint celebration between the king and his god, was probably a lavish affair. If those economic records are any indicator, then food, drink, and treasure flowed into Thebes to adorn the temples and make the pharaoh's jubilee one to remember. While we don't have the sort of information that survives for festivals of Amunhotep III, the surviving evidence points to some kind of celebration early in the new king's reign. We now come to the end of chapter 1. In the next chapter, we explore the larger significance of Aten's supremacy on earth. Having made his god wealthy and celebrated him lavishly, Amunhotep IV now began to promote Aten more clearly as a central part of the royal identity. With small flourishes and some fascinating decisions, the king was about to make his god a sort of co-ruler, establishing a divine trinity of god, pharaoh, and queen on earth. 
In chapter 2, we explore how Aten, the little sun disk that could, transformed from an abstract symbol to a genuine royal god. That's chapter 2 after the break. See you in a moment. The year was 1359 BCE, regnal year 4, under the majesty of Neferkeperure Wa Enre, Amunhotep IV, the god who rules Thebes. Pharaoh was sitting pretty. He had celebrated a said festival, one dedicated simultaneously to his own glory and to that of the Aten. The great god, shining on all lands, now seemed to be a central part of the royal propaganda. From some perspectives, Aten almost seemed like a king alongside Amunhotep. This impression was only going to get stronger, particularly as the said festival came to its close. Celebrations ended, and thousands of guests went home tired, and perhaps a little confused. Compared to recent said fests, this had been an unusual event. The king didn't partake in his proper rituals and performances. Instead, he led processions and made offerings to the sun disk alone. While the powerful were fettered and feasted, the king had been conspicuous in his changes to tradition. If anyone was curious about this, they may have been even more surprised when they saw the changes which now developed in royal iconography. Amunhotep IV had made Aten a central part of his public image. Now, he developed the god's identity even further, in a truly unprecedented manner. He did this with a simple trick, one that doesn't seem so big, but is quite significant. To emphasize the status of the god, Amunhotep began to put Aten's name in cartouches. The cartouche, or cartridge in French, was one of Egypt's oldest royal symbols. It dated back to the 4th dynasty and was a visual marker for a king's name. The cartouche was a simple icon, all things considered, a length of rope twisted around the hieroglyphs of the name and anchored with a straight line, perhaps a rod at the base. It was used to mark two of a ruler's names, his personal one, the one he was born with, and his throne name, the one he chose when he came to power. Notably, the personal name is also known as the Son of Ray name, a name which connected the king with the sun god, and marked him as its son. In the 18th dynasty, cartouches were used by the king and queen alone. No one else, not even crown princes, received this distinction. So cartouches are exclusive to the monarchs, male and female. Attaching one to Aten raises the question, was the god now a king? Previously, the great god Aten was described with simple epithets written in hieroglyphs, without any special markers. If you saw the god's name on a wall, it wouldn't seem much different from dozens of other divine titles. Even written out in full, the god's name, Rei Horakti, rejoicing in the horizon, in his name of Shu, which is in the Aten, was simply one among many. Putting it in cartouches, though, changed that substantially. It's possible that Amunhotep IV was communicating something quite specific about his vision of Aten. Perhaps, in his mind, this god was more present and real than your average deity. That would make sense. Aten, the sun disk, was uniquely visible among gods. 
No imagination required, he was right there, dominating the heavenly sphere with his light. This might have led the king to view Aten as an almost earthly presence, a god that was here, now, and wielding authority in the world. Apart from the cartouches, Aten also received another royal accessory. When we see him, the god appears as a disc with long arms, rays, stretching down to the ground. On the disc itself, though, there is a small adornment. From the time of the said festival onward, Aten began to appear with a uraeus. The uraeus, or royal cobra, dates back a long time, and it has solar connotations as early as the Old Kingdom. We see uraei referenced in the pyramid texts, where hieroglyphs speak of, quote, the uraeus which came forth from Re, end quote. They are powerful symbols, and the uraeus is frequently invoked as a protector of the king and the sun god. In the Middle Kingdom, some of the coffin texts describe the uraeus as, quote, the mistress of fire, the great one who is upon the brow of the Aten of sunshine, end quote. Clearly, the royal cobra has associations with the sun specifically, and the Aten as well. More fundamentally, the Uraeus is a marker of kingship. Just a couple generations before Amunhotep IV, another pharaoh had declared, quote, The Uraeus took its place upon his brow, the image of Re was established on its post. End quote. In context, that ruler was speaking about his appearance on the throne. So the cobra Uraeus is a marker of kingship and a potent symbol of the sun god. By giving Aten a Uraeus, Amunhotep IV seems to be blending those two ideas. On the one hand, Aten is the solar deity, nice and simple. On the other, it seems the god was being given a specifically royal identity and accessories. Combine that with the cartouches, and you have a compelling case for seeing Aten as a sort of second pharaoh of Egypt. It seems that Amunhotep IV saw Aten as a sort of co-ruler, one complementing pharaoh's earthly authority with a celestial kingship. If that's the case, it would help explain why Aten only ever shined on Amunhotep and his queen. The god was exclusive to the royal family because he was part of the royal family. Together, you might see Aten, Amunhotep, and Nefertiti as a sort of ruling triad or trinity, Three beings working together to maintain harmony, ma'at, on earth and in heaven. It's a powerful image, and one that I find quite compelling. By 1359 BCE, Aten was powerful and wealthy. The temples which served him were humming nicely, thanks to a vast supply of goods given by the king. The god himself now bore royal accoutrements and seemed to be a second ruler alongside the pharaoh. All of this is unusual, both for the speed of its rise and the universal scope of Aten's authority, not to mention the sheer focus which Amunhotep lavished on his favourite god. This kind of rapid development begs the question, where did Amunhotep IV get the idea for all of this? As you can imagine, many Egyptologists have tried to understand the king's attachment to Aten as best they can. It's difficult, though. Thousands of years have passed, destroying evidence and obliterating most traces of the pharaoh's ideas. With that in mind, and it is a big problem, 
Some scholars have started to ask, what if the king's love for Aten isn't just faith or worship? What if there is something personal going on here? It's time to ask a question that is being discussed more frequently among some Egyptologists. What if the Aten, the god whom Pharaoh loved so much, is not just a deity, but a manifestation of a being with whom the king had a personal connection? What if, for example, the Aten was a deified version of a human, one related to the king, and who himself used Aten as part of his royal identity? In short, what if Aten is Amun-Hotep III? It is totally impossible to separate Amun-Hotep IV from his father. The two go hand in hand, and the deeds of the elder shine down on the younger, for better and for worse. What if some of Amun-Hotep III's policies filtered into the consciousness of his son and helped to shape his ideas of the Aten? Before I explore this, I must stress that this is just a hypothesis. There is not enough evidence to make it a smoking gun theory. Think of it as a thought experiment, which some Egyptologists are conducting to understand the peculiar fascination which Amunhotep IV had with this god. With that in mind, here are some reasons why Aten might, just might, be a manifestation of Amunhotep III. Back in episode 105, I spoke at length about how Neb Ma'at Rey Amunhotep III slowly altered his identity from a living Horus to something like a living Rey. From the occasion of his first said festival, Amunhotep III had styled himself as a new type of pharaoh, one who straddled the line between earth and heaven more explicitly than any monarch before. Whether it was building temples to himself and his queen down in Nubia, expanding Luxor Temple to become a home for the royal car, or naming his palace Neb Ma'at Rey is the Dazzling Aten, Amunhotep IV had created a new persona for the pharaoh. It's not clear whether that king intended it to apply just to himself or to all monarchs who followed. But what is clear is that Neb Ma'at Rey, Egypt's dazzling sun, was a whole new breed of royal splendor and divinity. Surely, that must have had an impact on his child. As a prince, Amunhotep IV might have become quite caught up in the mythology which surrounded his father. Intentionally or not, the power of Neb Ma'at Rey, the dazzling Aten, must have had some influence on the prince as he grew up at court. By the end of his life, the aging pharaoh was referring to himself as a living god. What effect would that have on a young man preparing to inherit the throne? It's impossible to know, but you have to wonder if young Amunhotep IV watched his father's authority grow and felt some stirrings of faith early on in his life. What would the prince feel when he looked at his father's pageantry? Would he be awed, terrified, excited, or inspired? We will never know for sure, but any one of those emotions could have inspired a kind of devotion that transcended ordinary faith. We know that Amunhotep IV called Aten his father in many texts. That doesn't mean much by itself. Pharaohs did it all the time when talking about Amun-Re, Re-Horakti, and so forth. It's quite conventional. 
But considering that Amunhotep III spent the last few years of his life talking about Aten, it's possible that rhetoric filtered into his son's consciousness and helped shape the prince's future conduct. While most pharaohs treated the child of god thing quite conventionally, maybe Amunhotep IV genuinely meant it when he said, Aten is my father. For nearly a decade, Neb Ma'at Re referred to himself as a kind of living deity. What about when he died, though? Well, it's possible that after his death, Amunhotep III, the dazzling Aten, was elevated from the status of earthly monarch, or earthly god, to a more heavenly form of the title he had used in life. Amunhotep III and the Aten might be the same being in different forms. The notion that Aten is a deified version of Amunhotep III is still just a hypothesis. The surviving evidence is not crystal clear on whether the pharaoh was speaking generally, in conventional terms, or if he genuinely meant that Aten was his father. Maybe it was a bit of both, or maybe he had more abstract ideas going on in his mind. Unfortunately, what evidence that survives can be interpreted either way, and Egyptologists have not reached a conclusion just yet. Still, it is a fascinating idea, and it might explain why this pharaoh seemed so passionately invested in the Aten cult. That being said, it's not the only explanation that fits, and we will explore 18th dynasty solar theology in a future episode. For now, the notion of the Aten Amunhotep III is an exciting proposition, awaiting a bit more detail. The said festival finished, and Amunhotep IV could congratulate himself on a successful program of reform. As we round out this episode, there is one last question hanging over these events. With all of this change going on, you would be forgiven for wondering, how exactly did other Egyptians feel about the pharaoh's policies? Were they happy with what Amunhotep was doing, or were they opposed? As with most things in life, people's opinions probably had a lot to do with their own personal positions, needs, and ideas. Some people probably didn't care about all this, others might have been interested but not too concerned. Some might have been devout believers, and others may have been frustrated by the angle Pharaoh was taking. One group who may have been concerned with royal policy was the one representing the temple of Amun-Re at Karnak. The priests of this institution had traditionally enjoyed immense prestige, wealth, and access to royal authority. The last few years, though, had seen a steady shift in political relationships. The more attention the king gave to Aten, the less he was giving to the great royal god Amun. Whatever most people felt, Amun-Re and his priests were being left out in the cold. In one case, this was happening quite literally. In regnal year 4, maybe around the time of the said festival, a set of records show up in the deserts east of the Nile. They come from the Wadi Hammamat, a famous but inaccessible part of the country where kings had sent expeditions to obtain copper, gold, and stone for their projects. Out here, records carved into cliff faces tell of the mining expeditions sent by different rulers. 
One of these miners was none other than the High Priest of Amun. A rock carving in the desert tells how, in regnal year 4, an expedition came to the Wadi Hammamat led by the High Priest of Amun. His name was Maya, the first prophet of Amun, or Chem Necher Tepi Imen. Maya came at the command of the king, Amunhotep IV, in order to quarry statues made of grey whack, a type of dark sandstone. Accompanying him, Maya brought 250 soldiers and three officers, charged with protecting him on the expedition. This group left a string of rock carvings in the Wadi Hammamat, carvings that have been identified and translated, and which seem to indicate a suspiciously timed expedition on behalf of the pharaoh. It seems that Amunhotep IV sent the high priest of Amun and a large contingent of soldiers out into the desert around the time that he held a said festival for Aten. Why would he do this? Well, it's tempting to suggest that the king did not want a priest of the old guard hanging around, complicating his affairs. We can't be certain that's the case, but the timing of the expedition and the choice to send a high priest of all people are certainly suspicious. I think it's entirely possible that the pharaoh was concerned about the impact some of his policies might have, and he wanted to avoid the issue by having a prominent official out of town when his said festival occurred. Whatever the royal motivations, Maya's expedition to the Wadi Hammamat probably worked and would have taken some time. But when the priest returned and saw what Pharaoh had done for the Aten, he must have been concerned. Temples to Aten were one thing, a said festival was something else, and the rash of changes to iconography, cartouches, uraei, etc., really suggested that Amunhotep IV had dangerous plans for his god. Dangerous at least for the other deities and their priesthoods. As regnal year four passed and the said festival concluded, men like Maya may have started getting worried about what the pharaoh was doing. Pretty soon they would need to say something, or risk being swept aside by a monarch intent on change. Regnal year 4 was a watershed moment in Amunhotep IV's reign. As the said festival ended, the king was reaching the culmination of his peculiar religious agenda. He had elevated his god, Aten, to supreme status, and he had done so with unprecedented speed and determination. Older gods, like Amun or Rei, had taken centuries to rise. Aten had done it in just a few years. The king was not finished with his reforms though, not by a long shot. You see, along with the economic policies, the celebrations of Aten and the building of grand temples, Amunhotep IV also introduced massive changes in art. Around the time of the said fest, the pharaoh of Egypt started a revolution in visual imagery. With a host of changes, he reshaped, literally, the fundamental tenets of Egyptian art as we and they knew it. On the next episode, we witness this strange movement called Amana art and what it symbolizes about this ruler. That is episode 112, 
Artistic Revolution, releasing soon. Before we go, I want to thank everyone who has signed up to the podcast Patreon. Your support means the world, and it's helping me to pay for research materials and more useless things like food. If you have a dollar to spare and would like to help the show, consider joining up at patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. In particular, I'd like to thank Linda, a priest level subscriber whose generosity is unmatched in the two lands. Thank you, Linda. Arten will surely extend his hands to bless your life. To everyone listening, thank you very much for joining me on this narrative journey. Whether you're a silent listener or an active member of our social media groups, I appreciate your presence and I hope you're enjoying the show. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon.